Hello, everyone. I'm Sean Mooney of the Event Center here to tell you about an exciting event taking place at the Cow Palace this Friday night. In the main event, one of the most feared men in the WWF, the mammoth Yokozuna, tangles with the Lord of Lumber, Paxot Jim Duggan, who says he intends to bring down Yokozuna like a giant redwood. Yokozuna, you faced a lot of guys in the ring, but you've never faced a man like Hacksaw Jim Duggan, because you're not only going to be facing me, you're going to be facing everybody in the Cow Palace that will be chanting, USA, USA, and there's no way on God's green earth Hacksaw's going down in a crowd like that. Tough guy. Ho! <laughs> See, we still got it, folks. Well, I, I still got a promo anyway. Yeah, you sure can. <laughs> that was fun last week, Sean. I thought that was a lot of fun. I got a lot of positive feedback talking to you. Folks were excited to uh, have the podcast out there. They were uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I want to make sure everybody knows this isn't the event center. It is primetime with Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Sean Mooney, episode two. But I'll tell you, you know, Jim, listen, uh, listening to you do that promo, really, I, I kind of surprised you with that one. And, and just like that, you slipped right, right into cutting the promos. And I tell you, and I look back, you know, at the days when uh, that was something you did every week, I don't think people realize what really went into doing those promos, you know, and uh, I really want to get into that today. But uh, I know you've been pretty busy as usual. Where, tell me about your travels this week. I had a great weekend. I flew up to uh, Pittsburgh this weekend. I was with Rice Energy. They had a big, huge uh, thank you to the community picnic. Uh, they, had, they gave out over $800,000 to local volunteer fire departments. Of course, the guys that are out there, the, the real heroes, but that volunteer their time. A really big part of the whole Pennsylvania community, uh, Rice Energy. So it was fun to be up there. I got, I got a chance to call bingo. So anytime I got a no, it was, oh, 14. <laughs> so we had a, lot, had a lot of fun with the bingo folks. And it was, it was just a lot of fun to be out there with the folks face painting. Of course, we signed autographs, took pictures with people. And it's great after all these years to get out there and meet the folks and, and actually tell them, hey, thanks for all the support. I mean, you know, how many ball teams can you remember from the, the 80s or bands, guy? Uh, members from a band from back then it's 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 humbling to be remembered this far out from the heyday well you told me uh you know a couple weeks back you it was like being a rock star in those days of the wwf and it, you know what it's like it just goes on and on you're like the eagles yeah well yeah i don't know about that but it, it is I'm, folks remember our generation you know i mean if you can still name 10 guys without thinking about it from the old wwf you know jake hogan macho dibiase hercules hernandez earthquake dino brett i mean owen i mean you just go on and on where it's hard to name 10 of the current guys. But, of course, back then, you also didn't have 200 channels to choose from. You almost had to watch wrestling. And uh, folks folks really enjoyed that programming. Even up in Pennsylvania uh, uh, at the Rice Energy event, 90% of the folks I talked to were like, hey, I really love the old WWF days. But, uh, you know, that was a moment of time, and I was uh, glad to be part of it. Yeah, well, I know you see it uh, every week when you go on the road to uh, a lot of these independent shows and uh, you let, you do a lot of these Comic-Cons. You know, I, I'm not uh, out there like that. And I tell you, uh, this past week, I know a lot of the Twitter uh, comments that you received, a lot of the ones that I received really just uh, made me uh, think back and also made me realize once again like how much people loved 
that era. And that's what we have devoted this podcast to. We're going to be talking a lot more about superstars. I want to get into the event center and really talk about the, uh, you know, the brilliance of, of the event center and, and what it did back in the day for promoting events and how you really can't, you could not do that again today. But uh, you know, before we do that, uh, Jim, I know you got into a few scraps down the road uh, uh, in your career, uh, and real ones. And uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, Conor McGregor face, facing Floyd Mayweather. Uh, as we see yet another athlete trying to cross over. And we saw this, uh, you know, in history, we've seen wrestlers actually do this. And we've even seen to date, you know, people like Brock Lesnar, who found some uh, success uh, with the UFC and, and also Batista gave it a shot and these other guys. But what do you think about when you see these, these, uh, you know, matchups that we, we, we see like this one coming up, which could give these guys a hundred million dollars, uh, a piece before when it's over. Well, I think that's the bottom line. It'll be a big payday for both of them. That's what they're both looking for. But I think a, you know, a, a ultimate fighter, any given guy can beat anybody on any day. I mean, get that right punch in, a lot of wrestling, a lot of stuff on the ground. Boxing, that's an art form. I mean, that's a whole different type deal. I th- and, and a street fight, it wouldn't be any question. But a boxing match, you got to go with Mayweather. I mean, it's a, uh, it's an art form. She's throwing those jabs, ducking around. I mean, uh, and, and uh, the other guy, he's more of a wrestler. So, yeah, if you're going into the other guy's game, I think you're asking for trouble. But uh, I tell you what, I was the master of ceremony at one of those ultimate fight deals up in Montreal. And backstage is like being at a car wreck. I mean, all these kids are laid around all bleeding and beat up. Oh, oh. I'm like, wait a minute, fellas. I'll go out there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough way to make a buck, but uh, it's, uh, it's obviously very, very popular. And it hurt wrestling a little bit, that ultimate fighting, cage fighting, uh, UFC stuff. But I, I think it hurt boxing much more than it hurt us. Yeah. Well, and it's and really this. But this you don't, excuse me, Sean, but yeah, this, yeah, and you don't see no 30 year careers doing that. That neither no. do. <laughs> no, no, no. And, uh, and they're not uh, putting too many sentences together in their, in their fifties and sixties either. But, uh, you know, like I was going to say, this, this isn't really a, a new, uh, matchup kind of uh, thing. We see these, this, this crossover, uh, you know, I, I think, remember when Muhammad Ali took on Anoki? Uh, back in uh, 1976, and remember how big that was? Because Ali was really, wouldn't you say, he was like one of the first people who really understood? I mean, he said, "Gorgeous George," and and uh, you know, these uh, wrestlers are the ones that influenced him, and and really started the whole thing, the whole art of the promo. I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and yeah, and now you see it in more in. in- Main mainstream sports, you see in basketball, football, you see little you know trash talking back like today, and even the terminology, you know things being a work, uh, having heat with somebody, uh, guys remark. I mean, even our terminology is mainstream now. So, yeah, back back in the day, as you were talking earlier, an, an interview is is a learned art, and that was one thing in the Mid South territory. You wouldn't do just one generic interview. You'd do one interview for every city. And if Bill Watts didn't like it, boom, do it again. So not only did you learn your ring work, you also, you know, learned your interview. You know, my last time up there with uh, WWE, I I went in and this young kid comes up and goes, uh, Mr. Duggan, here's your verbiage for your interview. I said, my verbiage for my interview, how's some punk kid going to tell Hacksaw Jim Duggan how to cut his interview? And they're like, well, this is what we want you to say. And I was like, well, uh, 
send me my check. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I have a whole new respect for uh, actors and people that deliver lines. Those guys that go out there and he says something and I say something and he says something else and and make it come off like it, it's, you know, just natural. It's it's much harder than I thought it was. I was so robotic trying to do it. I'd be like, I'll see you in the ring. <laughs> I could, you know, I couldn't cut an interview in. And, but, but then again, you know, how do you write Ric Flair's interviews? You know, how do you write Jake the Snake interview? I mean, it's a lost art. Yeah, it really is. And and you, you look at uh, some of the greats, and I really want to get into it. I'll pick your brain. I'll, I'll give you some of the ones that I thought were tremendous. But, you know, first, I really wanted to uh, talk about the Events Center. And uh, there really, at the time, there was really nothing else like uh, this as far as promoting events. And that I, when I arrived, that is when it really they really started this. And if you think back, it really was a brilliant idea. And, and I don't know if a lot of people understand how it worked. You know, back then I think people know the story of how Vince wanted to get into a hundred markets. I think that was his goal, his goal to get the you know all the his programming in there. But uh, the beauty of this, the brilliance of the event center, was the the fact that they used to send tapes, Jim, to every market with with the shows on them, and uh, they would customize them so every single market had. You know, the, I would talk about wherever we were going, the Boston Garden, the St. Louis Arena, whatever it was. And then uh, I would be the one doing that. And then all the, the wrestlers, all they'd have to do is cut promos for whatever their angle was. And they do, might do, you know, four or five for that angle. And we would plug those in for every single market. And I would, uh, you know, customize them. And we wouldn't do it just, say, one week. We'd be four weeks out. We would be plugging those shows. So I would come on and say, you know, four weeks from Friday night, you know, at the Boston Garden. And we would do then three weeks away and two weeks away. And then this Friday night. And uh, we used to customize 90 markets a week. It was an unbelievable uh, process that they would have people basically 24 hours putting these tapes together and literally uh, overnighting them or FedExing them to these markets to play the next day or wherever when it was going to be on. But the the biggest part of this puzzle was at TVs, you guys would pr would do these promos. Do you remember how intense that was or what that process was? Because you had cut promos before that, but I can't imagine it was anything like this. Well, no, because they had special promo days we'd have up there in Stanford, Connecticut at the uh, at the studio there. They'd have probably 10 different little portable buildings set up that they each had to have their own crew uh, and uh, producer in there, the own camera crew, the sound guys and everything. And there would be a, a list and it would be like a TV day. You would wait till your number come up and you would go to whichever numbered booth you were supposed to go to and, and cut your promos. And you had, uh, you know, different guys in there and they would critique your, your promos. But I'd always joke one of the, one of the producers of the promos was George the Animal Steel. <laughs> you know, George's whole interview was mine. <laughs> mine. <laughs> and he was he was critiquing our interviews. So sometimes uh, guys got a little sticky with, you know, George having to do it over when uh, George's interview was, uh, you know, so simple but so effective. Well, then, did you ever say to George, well, George, show me, and then I'll <laughs> yeah, you show me how it's supposed to be done, and then we'll go from there. Well, he always liked mine. 
<laughs> no, of course, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's why if you're if you're a wrestler and you're always talking about the show, you're like, oh, it was sold out, jammed to the rafters, and we had a great match. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's when you come back to the dressing room and the guy goes, hey, how was your match? If you hadn't seen it, it was great. (laughs) (laughs) If they saw it, you might want to pull back on that a little bit. (laughs) But what was the process of doing of putting that together once you knew the angle together? But you guys, like you mentioned, you go there today and these guys, they hand them a piece of paper and say, "Okay, this is what this is what you're saying. That was not what it was like at all. I remember that, you know, remember Howard Finkel would be in those rooms and have this gigantic notebook. Uh, we didn't have uh, laptops back then and he would be thumbing through and that's how he would keep track of all the different interviews the guys would have to do. And he'd go right down the road because, you know, those event centers had three segments for each one we did. There would be, you know, two sets of interviews in each hit in the show and there would be three different appearances throughout the show. So how did how did you want to when you put your stuff together? How did you come up with ideas for what you were going to say? You know, I I'd always went on the fly, brother. You know, I never really prepared much for interviews. Some guys would write a lot of stuff down. Uh, I would just speak from the heart, and I think that's one of the the reasons that uh, helped my my character get over. It, it wasn't. They put a flag on me and told me to go out there and say something good about my country. I think when folks saw me standing out there holding the flag over my shoulder and I was talking about the land of the free and the home of the brave, it was coming from the heart. And I think that that helped my longevity. And again, if I try to prepare like some people did, you know, if you forget a line, then you go, I'd, I'd panic. I'd be like, oh, what am I supposed to you know, say like I do when I, with the interviews nowadays with, when they give you the verbiage? I think if you, you, you can over-prepare, I go out there, and of course, my character, I'd be out there, I'd be like, and when I get to the ring, I'll be excuse me, my lips aren't working today, I get so excited. Yeah. <laughs> the character couldn't mess up, you know? Yeah, but it was that process, though, I mean, there were some guys that were just terrible. I mean, I remember sitting in that room, and I you know, don't want to bury some of these guys, but I remember like when Warrior first started, and uh you know, the, the thing was like with Hulk Hogan, who was one of the best at doing that. I remember one time he was talking to one of the younger guys and he told them the piece of advice he gave him. He said, talk about anything but wrestling. And if you, if you look back at, at Hulk's, uh, you know, promos, he would always be, you know, every, every one of them would be, you know, something like, uh, you know, uh, you know, brother cruising down Pacific coast highway on my Harley, putting my toes in at Venice beach and then hanging and banging with the boys at muscle, you know, and he would get, get into whatever the match was, but it would have really nothing to do with what the, uh, you know, the, the match was actually about, but it was a great promo. Uh, who, were there other guys that, you know, that you learned from, or was it, who was it that really, you know, helped you out? to do in those kinds of things. Yeah, well, I think everybody has their own way. You know, Hogan's going to cut a different interview than Macho Man, and they're both going to be great. And then Jake's going to come in and do totally something totally different, and his interview's off the hook. I mean, and that was the deal. I think you had so many talented guys back back then. But, uh, you know, Brody was career, and, uh, you know, but my – a lot of my uh, mannerisms and my interview lines, tough guy was from my pop, you know? I mean, uh, like I said, I, I would just go out there and, and talk from the heart. It, it, it worked for me. I like so, if Some guys would write down, they'd be in there writing stuff and studying yeah. their lines, and it worked for them. I mean, 
You do what works for you because if it doesn't work, you're gone and some young kids got your job. <laughs> yeah. And did or they give you a manager? Of course, that's that's old school. If you got a guy that can work pretty good, but he can't talk, you, you know, you give him a manager. And of course, what a group of managers up there with uh, Bobby the Brain and of course uh, Jimmy Hart. I mean, just uh, some great managers. Even Slick and Mister Fuji. I mean, what a great job they did. Well, uh, yeah, Mister Fuji. I always thought that was interesting though when when they had him paired with people because he he had his own. Uh, <laughs> issues when he'd get up in front of that camera. And I remember watching one where he was doing on Yokozuna and he kept calling him, he called, always called him Yokozuma. And, uh, and, and then, you know, Yokozuna would stand in front of him and, oh, and, you know. Well, see, that's even better. So you remember it, Sean. How many guys yeah. go out there and say Yokozuna and you remember Yokozuna, you remember that. I mean, stuff like that. You can't teach that. You can't write that. That's the way Mr. Fuji was. He'd mess it up. Lou Albano was the same way. He would just talk his own language sometime. Yeah. And then Bobby Heenan was a completely different story because, you know, Bobby, no matter what the situation was, uh, he would he would always come up with something. And I'm sure that probably most of the time he just he didn't even know what he was going to say uh, when he would get out there and, and talk about some angle. Yeah, I don't think Bobby prepared at all. And he, I mean, what you saw on television with Bobby Heenan is what you what you got backstage with Bobby Heenan, what you got on the road with Bobby Heenan, what you got on the airport with Bobby Heenan. That's the guy. I mean, he was a, a funny, clever, quick-witted guy. He was great to travel with. I mean, he'd always have a little one-liner here and there. And, uh, you know, and so it's, it's so ironic that a guy was that uh, quick of tongue uh, had this horrible tragedy with the, the throat cancer and no. all that. It's a shame, but uh, Bobby, uh, one of the all-time best, the weasel, you know, the whole weasel suit thing. I mean, Bobby was great. Uh-oh. Junkyard dogs in the house. JYD, man, yes. Well, we live on a, I got a little uh, hobby ranch here in South Carolina. So we got dogs and cats, ducks and chickens, potbelly pig. I mean, <laughs> so... And of course, I have two daughters, so everything has a name. All the ducks have names. All the chickens have names. If something yeah. happens to one of the chickens. There's oh no, Harriet's gone. Oh Harriet, I'm like well, we're having the uh, uh, the colonel tonight for dinner. What's the difference here? <laughs> That's right. No, that you didn't see that one though. They didn't get to know the family. No, I know. Yeah. But getting back to Bobby though, if he probably wouldn't survive today in the WWE in a sense. I mean, he would, I'm sure he would adjust, but we'd never have had uh, the moments that he created uh, just by being who he was. And, and really, I remember seeing rundowns where it would just be Bobby does his thing or, Bob, you know, and that's, yeah. that's yeah, just, you don't write Bobby Heenan's stuff for him. I mean, that's, uh, that's just the deal. You don't uh, write that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know if like they, they write everybody's stuff up there now. I, I mean, Lawler, I, I don't think they write stuff for him and stuff like that. Guys that are still really good. Flair, they may give him guidelines, uh, but I, I don't think they're going to write exactly what they want him to say. But I don't know for sure. Yeah, you know, Jim, it's different today, though, as you watch. Uh, when we've talked about this. Uh, a lot of these guys are ring tacticians now. They're, you know, uh, how much do you think the fact that a guy could get over in front of a camera and in front of a crowd uh, really made them successful back then, whereas you don't see it as much today? 
because I, you know, you think of people, and I'm not uh, disparaging their what they were able to do as wrestlers in the ring, but you know, you look at somebody like, uh, you know, Honky Tonk Man, or you know, some of these other guys, that Jake, another example, who was great in the ring, but you know, he it wasn't, he didn't have this this look these guys all have today. Uh, how, how much do you think their success had to do with with what they were able to do in front of a camera, whether it was backstage or in the ring? Well, I think, yeah, that's a whole criteria now to be part of WWE. And, and you know, it's hard to be critical of what the, the current product. I mean, there are a lot of, like I said, a lot of folks say, hey, I like the old WWF. But I tell folks, hey, there was 80,000 people at WrestleMania from 40 different countries. Somebody's enjoying this show. You know, it's still a very popular, popular show. But you don't see... Uh, well, very seldom you see Earthquake, Typhoon, uh, One Man Gang, those great big heavy King Kong Bundy. You know, uh, those guys were the big powerful guys. They take them down there to the performance center and have them do 500 squats and, you know, 100 push-ups and run a, you know, eight-minute mile or four-minute mile, whatever it is. Uh, they, you know, it's it's a different product, but uh, it's it still works. and. Yeah, I don't know if my character would work nowadays. Go out there and I, I maybe too many hoes, <laughs> and I mean the good hoes, Sean. Knock it off, buddy. No, no, no. <laughs> not the ones I have in my notebook, right? Yeah. I said it's tough hoeing in New York. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but some of those guys that like Million Dollar Man. I remember you telling me about when he was down, you know, in Mid South, and I, I've watched some of the promos that he did down there. You could tell he he definitely had it. You know, he would he would come out and 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 as as bad as some of those promos may have looked at the time, but you could you could just tell uh, that he had it, and he carried that on when he came up to to uh, you know Stanford uh, with the WWF. Uh, did you did you know that? I mean, that not only was he a good well, wrestler, but but the personality that that guy had. Yeah, any of the second generation guys. I mean, you're just going to see just a much more polished talent. Uh, Jake the Snake. Kurt Henning, uh, you know, DiBiase, guys that grew up in the business, the Von Erichs, they understood the business so much better. And, uh, yeah, I always, I, I, I said, I've, I learned more from Ted DiBiase than anybody else in this business. I wrestled Ted thousands of times all over the world. And the guy is, you know, uh, 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 has a great wrestling mind. He's a great wrestling technician. Of course, that was my promo in the old days. I said, Ted DiBiase may be the greatest technical wrestler in the sport, but he can't fight a lick. When you're in there with Hacksaw, it's going to be a fight, tough guy. But, uh, yeah, I learned a lot from Ted. I think any of the second-generation guys. So it wasn't a surprise to see him go up there and then find such a a perfect gimmick for him. He he fit the gimmick. Ted's a GQ kind of guy. Him, Terry Taylor. Ric Flair, you know, they can be on the road for two months and they still got creases in their pants. You know, they got their sports jackets on being Piper and our Zumbas and T-shirts running through the airport. Right. Yeah. Were you, were you that tight with uh, Ted when you were with uh, Mid-South? Uh, yeah, quite a bit. That's, uh, you know, where I got my big break. I came in uh, and hooked up with me, Ted DiBiase and Matt Bourne were the Rat Pack down there. And, uh, we did, you know, that we did the gorilla suit angle where I dressed in a complete gorilla costume, and we uh, we screwed Junkyard Dog where he had to leave the territory, but he came back as Stagger Lee under the mask. I mean, angle of great angles down there in Mid South. But then Ted finally hooked up with Skandar Akbar, 
and there was no way hacksaw Jim Duggan's going to go against America. So that's when I started carrying the flag and and doing the USA thing, and I've been shoot doing that for thirty years, I guess. When when Ted came up, did did he call you to tell you you're not going to believe this? What they want me to do? No, no, we weren't they, that the, close. The million dollar man. Uh-huh. No, Ted and I were close. We're that you know my my good buddy back then was. Uh, I talked to Jake a little bit. And of course, uh, you know, you were friends with the guys that you were in the territory with, like we were talking before, you'd be on the road with the same guy for three years in a territory. He'd leave and go somewhere else. You wouldn't talk to him again for a couple of years until you see him. You didn't have the cell phones and the Twitter and the Facebook right. and all that stuff. So yeah, we, uh, you know, we didn't really talk. I was, I was hanging with a uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams down there in mid South. Yeah. And, uh, he, he's another one. I mean, but he had, he had it all. Uh, was he somebody that really had an influence on you as far as, uh, being in performing in front of cameras and, and, uh, you know, learning what you did in the ring there to, to get an audience to get behind you or whatever you wanted to do with it. Well, the, the promos were brutal. I mean, that was such a hard transition for me. I mean, coming from football, where you got, you know, 10 other guys around you, you got a helmet and shoulder pads, the fans are 50 yards away from you, you know, all of a sudden you're a pair of short shorts and patent leather boots, you know, with a crowd standing right there, like a stripper, you know, it was a very hard transition, man. I was, I was so self-conscious and my interviews were horrible. So my whole interview, I'd come out because the people, they used to chant, cockeyed Dugan, cockeyed Dugan. And I wouldn't get mad about the cockeyed deal, but I'd come out and i go, it's Duggan, it's not Dugan, D-U-G-G-A-N, two Gs, and I'd walk off camera. That was my whole interview for about a year. <laughs> so it's, I learned, it's hard to do, and a lot of people you see have the physical attributes, they have the look, they have the wrestling ability, they can't really talk on camera. Good friend of mine, God bless him, Brad Armstrong. Brad was one of the funniest guys backstage. What a great wrestler, good body, good look. But when that red light came on, he just, just seized up. He just had trouble talking on camera. They turned the camera off. He's the funniest guy in the dressing room. But, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's a strange package. It needed to be a pro wrestler at this level. Yeah. Who do you think were some of the best? that you got to see uh, that, that were really great at cutting promos. I know I have my list, but who do, who do you think was among the best? One after another, you know, and, and take your pick. You like the, 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 you know, the DiBiase with the laugh and the dribble the ball 10 times and kick it out of the kid's hand at eight or, you know, Hogan saying your prayers and taking your vitamins, you know, Ric Flair, Space Mountain. I mean, uh, you know, Jake talking real low, really, yeah. really. Slow, or you got hacks out there going ho in USA. I mean, you know, uh, everybody's got an opinion, and everybody knows who's best. But uh, you know, uh, my opinion, you know, the top three of all times got to be uh, Hogan, Flair, and uh, maybe Macho, I guess. Yeah, really. Yeah, that's that's uh, they're they're definitely my among my uh, top ones. But I always thought like the tag teams. You know, I thought uh, Legion of Doom, that uh, What a Rush was like always like one of the. The yeah, Hawk, yeah, What a Rush was a great line. I mean. And, and and those guys used to cut some great, great promos. And, uh, you know, uh, even. 
that hawk was what you saw. He was like that when you drive and travel with him. I know I used to travel with the Nasty Boys, and Greg was traveling with Hawk, Greg the Hammer. And one day we switched, and I had a Hawk, and he had the two Nasty Boys. Next day we pulled up side by side. I said, Greg, I'll gladly trade you one Hawk for two Nasty Boys. <laughs> I couldn't take it. He was driving me crazy. But uh, he was a great, uh, great interview, and, and uh and of course, he didn't pre- prepare. He was what you so Most of the guys at this level, it's not a, an act. It's not some suit that they put it on and become when they go to the ring. Most guys that are that successful, their character is just an extension of their own personality. You know, you know, hacksaw. He's in here with me. He pops out every once in a while when I was drinking a whiskey back in the day. You know, but uh, you know, Macho Man. Uh, I kind of joke, I love Macho, God bless him, but he was always wound up so tight. You know, he'd, he'd go to the McDonald's, he'd be like, uh, I have a milkshake! Why is that burger? Oh, yeah! You know, he's like, Macho, calm down a little bit, buddy. You know, God bless him. Yeah. What do you mean but, I can't have lunch? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most, yeah, it's not an act that guys are doing it. Uh, that character is in there with them if it's successful, I believe. Yeah, and, and, uh, and that's true that uh, that's many of that were the most successful were able were able to do that and they were they lived it off uh, on and off camera but uh, you mentioned uh, the nasty boys uh, guys uh, you know they try to make uh, uh, Terry Taylor the red rooster you know and he he, did, he hated it but you know uh, if he had embraced it like one man gang had embraced the keem he could have made that red rooster work, I think. Uh, another example is uh, when they brought Lex in, and when they gave me my walking papers there at WWF. They brought Lex in with a Lex Express and the you know the the big bus and landing a helicopter on the, uh, the Intrepid up there in New York. You know they're you know but Lex is not that the USA is not coming from the heart with Lex. Uh, so uh, you know some things just doesn't work even if they try to make it work. Yeah. WCW, he had to put $5,000 interest every time he went to the interest or something extreme, you know, but the character just wasn't there. It just didn't work. Yeah. But you mentioned these guys, though, that, uh, you know, I, I, I said something about, you know, like living it off the screen. But in a sense, though, I think some of the most successful guys, you mentioned Randy. Randy was the same guy like that intense. The nasty boys were out of their minds. And it wasn't just in the ring, right? I mean, you. Yeah, the nasty boys are friends of mine, and yeah, you know, I, I like the nasties, but and you know, a lot of guys, you know, some people. Hogan had like a three month uh, limit of the nasty boys. I've got about a three day limit of the nasty boys. Big Boss Man had like a three second limit of the nasty boys. Everybody's got a limit of the nasties. But uh, one thing I liked about them, they were equal opportunity. You know, they'd pick on the youngest, newest guy in the company, and then they'd come and they mess with Flair and Hogan. You know, they, they screwed with everybody, so you got to give them credit for that. Yeah, isn't there a story on a bus when, they, when uh, Brian had done something and these guys came in and just walloped him? And you say, That was the... At English tour, yeah, we flew over there. You know, you fly all night. You get into London early in the morning. Everybody had media and stuff to do that day and stuff. I went back to the room, took a nap. Kurt, Nobsy, and Sags went out and partied. That night, we had the show. Boom, we went out that night at the club. Everybody's having a good time like at the 
string fellows in downtown London, you know, with your party with Michael Douglas and Grace Jones, you know. Anyway, about two o'clock in the morning, I had had enough of knobs, and I'm like, screw you, knobs, I'm out of here, and I walked out on them. Well, the next morning, we're all getting on the bus, and it was uh, myself, uh, Sting, uh, Michael Buffer, we're all in the front of the bus, and you look, and here comes knobs, he's coming down the hill. He hadn't been to sleep in two days. He's been partying A to Z the whole time. He gets on the front of the bus. Yak, 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 yak. The two Harris brothers, the two big, tough, bad guys, Harris brothers, they get on the bus. They light him up. Pow, 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 pow. (laughs) Put a big egg on his head, juice his nose, and keep on walking by. Nobs, he never even drops his beer. <laughs> he looks at he looks back at Sting. He goes, "How would I do?" <laughs> <laughs> Poor Michael Buffer is stuck to the ceiling. He's scared to death. Sting's like, "You got your butt kicked, brother." I'm like, "They could have cut both his legs off. He wouldn't have felt it that day." <laughs> now, what was it that he just never got the message, or that's just who he was? Because he, I, I mean, he just, to that, he just never knew when to stop. He just never knew when enough was enough, you know, and, you know, at work, I mean, uh, uh, Willie Nelson is, is one of Nobsy's friends. You either like him or hate him. You know, yeah. I've been on stage with Willie Nelson because Nobsy knows him singing, uh, at farm aid. Nobsy got me, him, uh, and Sags and our wives to farm aid park backstage with all the, we got an old beat up Winnebago. We're parking backstage with all these million dollar buses, but at the end of the concert, it was like, come on on stage. And yeah. I'm pretty sure they turned my mic off because I was juiced up pretty good. You know, it was, made the circle be unbroken. So I was like, hey, that's a goal. You mean it would have been a much better version if you weren't juiced up? Is that what you're saying? Uh, probably not much better, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, they were, uh, they've got uh, quite a reputation, but well, there's certainly other ones. Uh, and and uh, I wanted to do the spotlight today. I was going to talk, have us talk about Jake the Snake Roberts, but you know, since you've kind of already gone there, uh, he's another one though that that uh, he, I always thought he could have been an actor, like he could have been in movies. I mean, really, the way that intensity that that guy had, he could have played a great villain. And uh, you know, the, he was—I think he was a natural at what he did. And I think the WWF is lucky they got him in that forum. Oh yeah, well, Jake. Jake's one of the best ever. And I, I, I like Jake. I, like I said, he was the head usher in my wedding. Probably wouldn't have been my best man, but my dad was my best man. God bless him. That was almost like thirty years ago. So I, Jake and I were tight for for many many years. And then of course he got hooked on the the crack. He was on the pipe for a while. So I didn't even talk to him for twelve years because he was just a, a totally different person. How did that so relationship course- start, though? How did you guys first meet up? I think we met in uh, the Mid South Territory. Yeah. In uh, Mid South, he came. Of course, Grizzly Smith was uh, Jake's dad, and Grizzly was uh, uh, watches uh, number one guy there, handle all the, uh, the house shows and stuff. So yeah, I just uh, hooked up with Jake, and I always said, I said Jake the Snake's one of the best guys you'd want to party with, <laughs> but you want driving your getaway car. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Yeah, you'd be back out of the Seven Eleven going, uh, Jake, uh, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but, what did he uh, look like back then? Because uh, even at the point when you know guys were huge, Jake still had a little bit of this, uh, you know, midsection going. He never had like the big, 
pythons. What did it look like back then? Oh, yeah. You know, Jake was yeah, Jake. And that's the deal. You didn't have all the cookie cutter guys that you seem to see. A lot of ball heads, a lot of tattoos, a lot of big muscles. You know, I mean, and hard to argue with success. And that's what's working. But, yeah, back then, uh, you know, Jake's character, uh, it was it was kind of scary. It was, you know, it's like uh, Kamala. Very seldom do you see guys nowadays that scare kids. The baddest, meanest heel in the company walks down to the ring. Everybody runs down to touch him and get a high five. Yeah. Back in the day, Kamala come on down to the ring. The wild Samoans, them kids go the other way. They wanted to get away from them. They were scary. Yeah, they just they just flew away from them. But uh, uh, Jake, you know, you, you guys have known each other an awful long time. Uh, what was that road like, though, in the beginning? And then when he started to go, uh, you know, south a little bit. And I know in your book you talk about it, but uh, it didn't seem like there was anything you could do to stop it. Well, no, I mean, it's, everybody's over 18. Uh, so they you know what people do. They do. I, I don't think anybody's going to intervene, especially back there and say, Hey, you know, you're doing too much drugs. Cause everybody was doing a lot of drugs. I was doing a lot of drugs. There was the, the, the lifestyle. I, I very small percentage guys were not involved in drugs. I would say, you know, as we talked before, people try to compare you to a sports team. We were a rock and roll band. I mean, you're flying around the world, Learjet's London, boom, next night you're in Paris, boom, next night you're in New York. You know, people are coming up trying to hear, hear it. here's an eight ball, you want an eight ball, Here, you want to party with this chick? Uh, you know, I mean, it was a, a crazy wild lifestyle. A lot of guys got a, caught up in that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I was lucky. I was in that lifestyle for a while, but uh, my wife threw me a lifeline and pulled me out. Yeah, I was going to ask you how. I mean, how do you? How did you get past that? Because uh, there were some people. Was it just that some were better at others at handling it, or or uh, had someone around them that, like you said, yanked them out? And uh, well, the, you know. as we were talking on the first show, there's success stories out there. You know, Piper, Tito Santana. I mean, uh, uh, Bill Eady with Demolition, Barry Darso. I mean, guys that are successful in this business, you just don't hear hear about it. And I think, like myself, I I did as as much cocaine probably as, as most people, but, uh, I never had that addictive type app attitude, you know, and I never really liked it. That's the old joke. He said, you can't eat, you can't sleep and you can't get it hard. Uh, what the hell <laughs> last thing I want to do is act crap. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know there was a few times I remember where, uh, when all that was going on, it was, uh, doing a few interviews with some of those guys and you had no idea what, the, what was going to happen. Because, uh, you know, it was, it was a period of time there where it was just out of control. It seemed like it was out of control. Yeah. But if you, if you look at it back then, nobody really died when they were with the company, you know, most guys were away from the company and still, and that's when they really got into that lifestyle. It would happen. They would would do a lot of blow and then they'd say, Oh, I got to get some sleep. Try to take a couple downers. And a lot of guys blew their hearts up, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, someone like, uh, for example, and I don't, you know, I don't know the effects of this probably there's still studies going on of how steroids affected people's minds and their behavior and whatever. But I, I remember doing, uh, a lot of stuff with, with, uh, with the warrior and, uh, where we would do, you know, these personal appearances. And I used to dread those because I never knew who was going to show up. 
you know, sometimes Jim would come there and he would be, he would be, you know, fine, great. Everything's good. Glad you're there. Next time he'd come there and he'd be signing these pictures and, uh, you know, just never look up, throw them out at the kids. Uh, one time he took, he tossed a table and, you know, it was like, uh, it was, he was high strung anyway, but, you know, I'm sure you saw, you witnessed some of that, you know, with, with, uh, what was going on with some of the boys then. And it's, it was the best of times as far as, uh, what, uh, you know, we were able to accomplish at that time, but man, it was, uh, it was crazy. Well, so steroids were rampant. And of course, you know, when I first came up and with the WWWF, they had Zahorian, who was the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission doctor, who was passing out the drugs, you know. I mean, it was uh, totally different. It was still the the dark, closed business of professional wrestling. And then, you know, steroids were rampant in the 80s, and nobody realized how bad steroids were for you. I mean, I took steroids. I got up to 310 pounds. I had a 505-pound bench press. Uh, I was a monster, but, you know, also I'm a cancer survivor. You know, yeah. I put a lot of junk in my body, and with the grace of God and early detection, they were able to save my life when I was diagnosed with kidney cancer. So, uh, you know, the luck of the draw where some guys are gone and I'm still around. Yeah, did you see that transition, though, where, like you said, at, at uh, back in the day, you know, like with these, uh, you know, those old outfits, these independent outfits, it wasn't so much that, you know, you had your muscle men, but there was a lot of, a lot of wrestlers that were really great performers who weren't. Uh, when do you well, think Bobby that transition really? That's a good name, yeah. Bobby, yeah. Ricky, uh, the guys, Ricky and Robert, they put in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Neither one of those guys, uh, you know, are, are physically imposing. Yeah. So uh, when do you think that transition really started where that became started to become more important than, you know, uh, you know, like we're size because it was almost like you had to do it if you wanted to compete. We talk about, you know, how many uh, limited roster shots there were uh, that you had to, in a, in a sense, do it just to, to be able to, to stay in the game. Yeah, well, I think it evolved from a house arena type business to a television type show. I think it, it changed a lot. I mean, when you were going to, you know, Shreveport, Louisiana, Monroe, Louisiana, Alexandria, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas, when you walked to the ring, you wanted Nikolai Volkov, Butch Reed, I mean, Barry Darso. You wanted some big, mean-looking guys because they were walking through the crowd. And everybody's looking at, up at him going, wow, that's that guy. You know, where some guys walk through, they go, hey, I know Joe at the the mechanic can get, kick his butt. What the hell is this guy a pro wrestler for? But then the uh, the, the uh, business evolved into almost a television show. And uh, it's hard to tell. I mean, the Rusev, he's not that really that big of a guy. Everybody thinks he's a monster. But, you know, relatively, you know, he's not like an undertaker or somebody like that. Or even Hogan. Hogan's a big man. Yeah. But uh, I like to uh, draw the conclusion, but it's, it's nowadays it's like a television show about a wrestling company. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, a, it's like a, a NYPD Blue was a television show about cops. This is like WWE is a television show about wrestling. It's a different different product, but people love it all over the world. That's I think I was telling you last week. Uh, I joke with the NFL guys all the times. So, world champions. <laughs> Where yeah. in the world have you guys been, you know, wrestling? We go all over the world. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm a, a big student. I love, I love the era of when radio and, and television collided. 
and uh, you know, and they made that transition where guys who were performers in radio tried to make the, the transition to television, and, and many of them did that. You know, and I had a conversation the other day with with a friend of mine, and it really uh, that period of like when we talk about uh, you know the mid '80s, to me was that evolvement of wrestling that uh, it it really had been it, uh, like uh, had been going along and. Uh, what had worked kept working, and then suddenly you had this entire, this unbelievable exploding uh, future of of what it became. And, and do you do you see what I'm talking about in that sense that you know there was just so much that happened that changed it forever, and 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 really I think uh, made it what it is today that what, that people love so much about it. I think if it would have stayed the same. I don't think you would have had uh, the same uh, uh, way it evolved into what it is uh, today. Well, yeah, I think the business has always been evolving, though. It is an evolving, you know, the product you see now is going to be different, uh, you know, 10 years from now, it's going to be a different product. So, but the big jump was in the 80s. I mean, it moved from the carnival type atmosphere, the tough man type atmosphere, where you're working the people, everybody was a mark, and you're trying to work them out of their, to a game, to the territory times, which a lot of people enjoyed the territory, because so many wrestlers were making a living at the territory each company would have you know 20 30 guys working at a company and then it evolved into you know the wwf and the huge monstrosity worldwide empire wwe universe that it's become but also there's that's i do these indies man and the folks love the indie shows people like traditional type wrestling you know who the bad guy is you know who the good guy is so you know, I tell folks, if, if you have an opportunity to support independent local wrestling, those are the guys that really love the business. They're, you know, out there, they have regular jobs or working nine to five or whatever it is. But during the weekend, they're out there and they're chasing a passion that they love. Uh, I enjoy the indies and uh, they, a lot of them, there's some good indies out there. Yeah, but it's tough for them to survive, isn't it, Jim? I mean, it, can it's they hard exist to survive, and, you know, but some, you know, some, and I, I do a lot of one hit wonders too, where they fly in and they have a limousine there to pick you up and they fly <laughs> and then they take you to the Hyatt and they're like, you know, they rent in the big arena in town and you, you go there and there's 40 people, yeah. <laughs> you know, the poor guy loses his butt, but, uh, you know, there's other promoters, uh, Jerry in Oklahoma, river city in Texas, a uh, big time up in New York or, or the new England, I mean, they run shows for years. They've been running shows. And, you know, they high school gyms, National Guard armories. They don't try to get too big, but they fill a niche and, and folks like it. And what would you like to see, though? I mean, can, can they, you know, the, you have these other ones that are trying, TNA and all these. Uh, it seemed as, you know, once WCW folded up, that was pretty much endgame. And all the rest of yeah, these. Yeah, there's no uh, question. Well, like you know, exhibition. first. Yeah, Sean, but you know, for every Hertz, there's an Avis. You're not going to be compete against the WWE. There's no way it's it's too big. But you can offer an alternative. Give the folks something else to watch besides WWE. And, you know, TNA, Impact, they had a good thing, and they screwed it up. What I, why would you give Vince Russo that job? I mean, imagine if he got... WCW, a Ted Turner company, offices at CNN Tower in downtown Atlanta, and you got movie stars and everything in your company, and you give your company to Vince Russo, and it flushes down the toilet. 
Now, why would Dixie Carter be sitting down there going, geez, I wonder who I can get to run my company? I got it. Vince Russo. (laughs) He did such a good job with WCW. I can never understand that logic why they brought him in there. But But could uh, it have survived without him? Well, I think so. If it had the right leadership, I mean, because uh, you get just associations. I mean, have you know the Turner Classic Movies and all this stuff. Uh, I mean, you just have your guy standing with uh, Wolf Blitzer at CNN. I mean, just the association with your talent with the other people in the company. There seems like so many things they could do besides Russo coming in and making himself world champion. <laughs> Maybe there's a little bit of an ego problem there when a guy comes in and goes up. Oh, I'm I'm running the show. I'm writing the show. So I'm going to write myself in the world, be in the world. That happens on some of the small indie shows with a local guy. Well, I own the company. I'm the world champion. Well, I know you got paid, right. Jim. I know you got paid. But was there a point where you went, boy, I made uh, this is a big mistake? No, never. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was talking to Bundy, you know, and he's like, at least you got down there. You know, they, they didn't, they treated me okay. They never, they didn't treat me super duper great like they did to so many other guys. But uh, I'm not complaining. I had a decent run down there. Even at the end, when they were trying to push me out of my contract, you know, at one time they made me the janitor of the yeah. WCW, you know, and they're like, uh, well, Duggan, you got to wear a janitor suit. And well, that's fine. I mean, that's what janitors do. And the, the first vignette we did, they said, you got to clean, clean Vince Russo's toilet with a toothbrush. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, that's cool. You know? <laughs> so when it came time to do it, I poured a diet Coke in the toilet. And instead of holding that, <laughs> You know, all the way back and scrubbing it. I had my head down in it. Oh, I'm cleaning the toilet. Water's splashing everywhere, you know. It made the gimmick work, you know. Uh, and then they, they went ahead and made me join Team Canada. So they were trying to push me out of my contract. But even at that point, I wasn't uh, uh, yeah, I wasn't happy about moving down there because this is the way I support my family. And it was uh, it was a good run down there. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, the guys getting these these gimmicks, and but making them work. I mean, you know, Dusty is certainly with the that that uh, run with Sapphire. He made that work. He put it over, uh, and like you said, anything they throw. I mean, I guess the best are able to do that and turn it into something. One man gang with a team, oh. you know, as one man gang, he was a monster. He was a tough man. I'll tell you, gang and I, we beat the devil out of each other down there in mid south. I mean. It was, I've had easier street fights and lost all the time, but, uh, but the gang and then they, they put that Akeem gimmick on him and he switched from being a bad SOB to dancing with slick on the way to the ring, doing his African dances as Akeem made it work. Give him his TV time. He gets his stuff over mark of a true professional. Awesome. All right, Jim, before we wrap up today, and, and uh, we've got a, a bunch of Twitters and people, you know, wanting to hear stories and, and a lot of them were about Andre and Bobby. So I, I thought maybe we'd wrap up today. Maybe you, you tell one of your favorite uh, Andre stories. I'll tell you one of my Bobbies. So uh, uh, do you have one with well, Andre? Go ahead, I'll go ahead, Sean, and uh, I'll stick them both together if it's okay. Andre challenged anybody. And they, you know, they sent me down with my two by four. I ended up knocking them out, but I ended up working with Andre quite a bit. But when I first went up to WWF, uh, we're having a big show in the Northeast, another sellout. I'm going to tell a story. It's a sellout show, Sean. (laughs) Especially if you weren't there. (laughs) 
house, right? Anyway, so I'm wrestling Andre, and boom, he pop, pop, pops me, and I go down. I hit the mat, and Bobby Heenan's ringside. He's going, give him the mudslide. Give him the mudslide. And I'm laying there going, you know, I've been around for years. I have never heard of a mudslide. <laughs> so I'm sitting here thinking about what a mudslide could be. And Andre comes down and just sits on me up. I'm like a human suppository. I go right up on either side of his cheek on either side of me. I'm like, ah, oh, mudslide. So then no matter what's going on in the ring from then on, I'd be, you know, wrestling Andre. He'd knock me down and I hear mudslide. Give him the, I'd roll out of the ring. Oh, USA. Yeah, you slid right out of there. That's great. All right, you know, the other the other night I was watching, uh, I watched the first episode of Raw, and I don't know if you remember that one real well, but my I was the you know the first person to appear. Uh, I was out in the street and uh, you know welcomed everybody to the Manhattan Center. It was a freezing night. I could barely talk. I'm, I, I, I did warm up eventually, but uh, but the 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 whole premise of that night was uh, Rob Bartlett, who uh, was in, uh, did some announcing, uh, if you recall, for a little bit. He was uh, part of Don Imus's team for some reason. Vince thought he was very funny, so the the idea was that Bobby had been banned from the building, and he had to, uh, you know, he, he wasn't allowed in the building, so. Uh, it, one of the first hits we do is Bobby tries to get into the building and I stop him and say, you can't go in your band, Bobby. And he's like, what are you talking about? I, I gotta go in. I gotta, and I said, no, you can't go in. They start the show. So the next time they come back to me, I I'm there with this crowd. And then this, uh, it, the, I, there's a commotion with security and Bobby's trying to get in, uh, dressed as a woman saying he's Rob Bartlett's aunt. So that doesn't work. And the next one he dressed, he's, 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 tries to go past me, whatever. And I grab him and say, excuse me, sir. I just want to ask you, uh, you know, are you trying to get tickets for next week's show? And he's, he's dressed as a Hasidic, a Jew with the, the big black hat. And he's got this giant black beard on with the big black coat. And, uh, he's got, I got to go talk to my, my, my uh, nephew, Rob, uh, whatever. And as he's talking, he's got this beard and it's one of those things, it's just like, you know, all the fuzz and everything. Well, at one point he tries to talk and, and the thing like got in his mouth. And if you look at that video, you can see him. He like chokes. And then he says, I, I, I get, get to the roof, fiddler on the roof, whoever. And I, I, at that point, I like lost it. I mean, between him choking on the beard, and then he said, I'm the fiddler on the roof, uh, was just one of those classic moments. And I, I, I'm sure, I don't know how many times you were with him, but. You said Bobby was the same on and off. The guy is is so quick witted, and stuff can you know that he would just say. And I, I thank God I, I was off camera when that happened because you would have seen me breaking. I, I thought, and I after we stopped, I just was on my you know knees laughing so hard. But that's my Bobby yeah. story for this week. Oh, man. Uh, Bobby was you know we used to that. I, I don't know what the show was called, but it was like a round table was Vince. Bobby and Kurt and me and Hillbilly, yeah. uh, whatever the show was called. And we do it every week up in Stanford. But, uh, you know, back then I was the king of wrestling. I had the cape, the crown, the flag, the board, the thumb, the tongue, the hole, and the crossed eyes, you know. Of course, Heenan would all, we were all sitting there and, you know, it would be a break in the ash. And, you know, Heenan look over at Vince. He goes, you know, Vince, Doug needs an eagle. You should get Doug and an eagle. <laughs> he needs a bird. Bobby, shut up. He'll get me an yeah. eagle for a rib, you know. I mean, 
Coco's got the bird. The bulldogs had the bulldog. Jake had the snake. Uh, Ricky had the iguana. You know, so you know Bobby would. Uh, and he'd go and to the restroom. He was funny as hell. He'd go to the restroom. <laughs> We'd all be sitting there. He'd leave his mic on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. I think we know what happened it. after that point. Well, folks, uh, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter at uh, official hacksaw at official hacksaw. So you can uh, reach Jim. Uh, you can also get to me at at Sean Mooney who, uh, in honor of Bobby Heenan. And of course, the other Twitter account for the show is at Primetime MLW. Folks, thanks for listening. Of course, you got to take us out of here, Jim, with. Well, Sean, good to talk to you, and hopefully talk to you again next week. But until we do it, and if you're going to hold, buddy, hold like you made it. Let's go. Hold!